Welcome to our gathering. Um, glad you guys are here. You can keep your Bibles uh, where uh, he just read. So chapter 10 uh, will be where we're going to be today in just the first verse of 11. Um, we're going to begin to look at Daniel's fourth and final vision uh, this morning. Um, it, it's covered in chapters 10, 11, and 12. So, so the other visions were like a chapter each. This fourth one uh, takes up three full chapters. Pretty amazing vision, this fourth one. It basically, in a nutshell, predicts um, the key people and key events from Daniel's day all the way through to the second advent or second uh, coming of Christ. So this is a, a, a huge span of, of time that this vision, that the components and pieces and people and places of this vision cover. All of that, pretty, pretty cool. And, and, and the other visions have kind of covered that, that width, if you will, too, but not in the kind of detail that this one has. In fact, there's so much detail, uh, there's so much precision and detail in these three chapters on this fourth vision that there are a lot of skeptics who doubt the reliability of the authorship and authenticity of, of the writings. They say, well, it's too precise. No one can predict the future like that. So obviously, Daniel didn't actually write these passages, didn't record these passages during his day, and they did after the fact. So that's what the skeptic says. That's what the liberal scholar says. But if that is true, then God's word is not true. God is a liar, and, uh, and our faith is basically a joke. We're the biggest fools in the world. So I think it's clear uh, that this stuff was written when it was written, and it predicts the future, but there is such precision here, it makes you go, wow, this is incredible. So we're going to begin to look at this uh, vision today. Let me give you... a just a, a, some background, some context, you know, kind of the who, what, where, when, and why of what's playing out here and when this was written and what was playing out in Babylon at the time. Um, Darius, King Darius, who was a Mede, he was out. He, he has now left the throne uh, over Babylon and over the Medo-Persian Empire, and Cyrus the Great uh, had taken control of that empire. And they were kind of like partners. Cyrus was the, the greater king of the two. Um, Darius was kind of a, I don't know, he was, he was an appointed king under him. Uh, but Cyrus was the big dog, if you want to put it that way. And, and so now he has assumed the throne uh, in Babylon, which uh, it would be over all of Medo-Persia, a vast, vast, vast empire. Part of the empire, what it used to belong to or was overseen by Nebuchadnezzar. People here probably have heard of him. Uh, but this is, Cyrus is in place now. He's over Medo-Persia, this vast empire. Soon after he uh, took the throne, he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem uh, and uh, to their own land because this all takes place, if you don't know or not familiar, it takes place during what's called the 70-year Babylonian Empire, or not empire, but uh, captivity, the exile. And uh, so this is the tail end of that, and this particular king is the one. Nebuchadnezzar took the Jews out 70 years earlier, and this is, this is the king now that's kind of sending them back. So that's what's playing out. Uh, not only did this king begin to send uh, these Israelites, the Jews, back to their homeland, uh, but he also promised funds, uh, supplies, resources uh, to rebuild the city as well as the temple. These things had been destroyed during Nebuchadnezzar's third campaign against Jerusalem. He basically turned the city into uh, a wasteland. And so now Cyrus is sending the Jews back and he is sending them with resource uh, to kind of work on getting the city uh, back together. And this really is a spectacular fulfillment of the promise Daniel had discovered in the scroll of Jeremiah, right? Where Jeremiah talks about Cyrus, you know, a king being raised up. 150 years before Cyrus is even born, Isaiah prophesied that a king named Cyrus would begin to rebuild the city and send the people back. Just crazy. So Daniel, 
being given prophecy is one thing, but being given prophecy and then being enabled to see some of it come to pass is just a whole, that just, that's like, that's the topping on the Sunday. And, and he's getting to see these things that were kind of prophesied, even some things to him that were prophesied, and he gets to see them fulfilled, not all, but many. And uh, what an exciting thing for him. Now, Daniel longed to join the patriotic Jews who would be returning to Jerusalem. He, he wanted to go back with them. That was kind of his goal. But at this point, he's like, you know, 80 years old. And it is a 500-mile journey and not an easy one uh, by any stretch of the, the term easy. So uh, it was a grueling 500-mile distance, and, and he's 80, and uh, uh, I'm 47. I probably wouldn't want to make the journey at 47. I barely want to drive anywhere anymore, and, and, and we have cars. And so this guy would have had to go camel back, or not camel back, but donkey back, or walk 500 miles at 80 years old. He's like, man, I, I can't do it. But he loved the fact that people were returning, and he wanted to be with them. He wanted to go with them. But as the months passed following the decree to send the people back and rebuild the city, Daniel's joy uh, began to wane or fade and he fell into deep, deep concern. Uh, the Jews in Babylon, his people that were with him in, in Babylon, they didn't respond to their release and, and return to the promised land the way that he wanted them to or the way that he thought they would. I think he, he overestimated their commitment to the Lord. He knew his commitment and he assumed that the other Jews were like him. And uh, it just wasn't the case. He thought Cyrus's decree would inspire a surge of joy and, and praise from his you know, fellow countrymen and from God's people. And there would be a, a mass exodus. You know, it's like as soon as the trigger is pulled and they can go back, he assumed that there would be a mass exodus of God's people out of Babylon making that 500-mile trek. He assumed that would take place Kind of similar to what happened back in Egypt centuries before, right? When the Jews like fled out of Egypt under those pharaohs. But those who chose to actually return to Israel were all too few. Most of the exiles, those who had been removed from Jerusalem and were now in Babylon, most of them had grown accustomed to life in Babylon, choosing to remain in the comfort of their surroundings rather than endure the hardships of the journey back to their homeland and the, the rigors of rebuilding a ruined city and temple. To make matters worse, news from those who had returned to Jerusalem, uh, the news that came from that group that was over there doing it, it wasn't encouraging news. It was discouraging news. The rebuilding of the city was going very slowly. It was you know, the people were plagued by apathy. They weren't motivated. You had unsteady leadership um, overseeing the building, the rebuilding campaign and all that. And, and you also had attacks from the hostile tribes that had settled in the vacated land. So the minute that the Jews are removed from their headquarters, Jerusalem, not long after that, you had people coming in and kind of making it their home. Um, uh, what would we refer to them today? Squatters, maybe? You know, when you come in and, you know, the, the powers never turn back on and they kind of live there and all that. We heard some stories the other day from a realtor, and I was like, really? There was a house down the street from us, and my wife and I would walk by this house all the time on our way to go down and walk. You guys have been down there before with us, these two lovely ladies on the end. We go walk down in the park, and there's this house, and there were always people out there working on cars and all that. You know, we were always friendly to them and all that, but I always felt like I needed to have a bazooka with me because I felt like I could get shanked and robbed because they, they were just, yeah, I'm judging by their appearance, uh, but it just, you didn't feel safe. But here's the deal. We were talking to uh, a realtor or one of the people that actually bought that property recently and is renovating it. And she said that whole time that you were walking by there interacting with those people, they weren't the rightful owners or the rentees. <laughs> I was like, I knew there was a disturbance. It just, they were squatting. They were, they were even, it was like they were at home. They were even fixing their cars out. I mean, that's squatter level 10. 
when you actually settle in, it's not like you're trying to hide in the corner and get a night's sleep without, you know, being bitten by somebody or something. You're fixing your cars and you're acting like it's your place. And in a similar way, that's what was playing out here in Jerusalem. You had these hostile people and tribes that were anti-Jewish and they were living in the land. And so it just the combination of poor leadership and apathy and squatters, it just... It just created an environment that was just miserable, miserable. And, and not to mention that some of the Jewish leaders uh, that were overseeing some of this stuff had themselves become discouraged. And then they were, because you know how in, uh, discouragement can be. If you're discouraged, you have the great potential to flood others with all your disparities. And you can take a person who's up here like, ha. Ah! Right? And then, well, you know, and then they're going, oh, you know. So this was playing out here in Jerusalem, too. Even the leadership was impacted by all of the dynamics, and they were, you know, Bob Bummer, Debbie Downer, boom. You know, have you ever seen the Saturday Night Live skit? I hope not. Uh, but they were just, it was, it was a whole bummer. It was terrible. It was a bad environment. One leader even ordered the workers to shut down the entire project and walk away. Just stop rebuilding your city and or our city and let's put an end to it. Worst of all, I think, in Daniel's mind was the report that many of the returning Jews were intermarrying. They were marrying foreign wives. And if you know anything about Israel's history, that has been one of their, one of their Achilles heels. You know, they, they, they marry foreign wives and we're all thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Well, you know, foreign wives back then had crazy, idolatrous religions. And so, you know, if you marry somebody and you're close to them and they have a different religion than you, it, it's going to go either way. And in Israel's case, Israel would always kind of fall to the wives, the men would, and the idolatry. And the next thing you know, they're not even like Jewish anymore. They're not even worshiping their God. And so this is happening now. Now people that are going back over there are saying, hey, some of these squatters are kind of hot. And now they're marrying and they're, they're getting in relationship with these people. And so it's like, whoa, Daniel's back at the back going, I'm done. I am so done. I mean, he must have felt like Moses a few times there, right? When he was stressed, but he always begged God to be merciful. Daniel, because of all these things, he felt a weight of just tremendous sadness. It just settled over him. It came over him like a fog, like a cloud. His people were headed down the same path with the intermarrying and all the things that were happening. They were headed down the same path that had led to their captivity in the first place. Isn't that crazy? Just think if you're a leader and you're, you know, you're with your people and everything seems to be going good and then it's not long before they're returning back to the very thing that got them in trouble. I just, I can't imagine how this poor guy felt. Daniel um, may have been dealing with these complexities and difficulties and, and stressed and worried, but you know, he, he knew how to respond to these situations. You know, he, he took leave from his duties in Cyrus's court, and he, he went into seclusion a bit. You know, he didn't turn into like a, a strange monk that's hiding out somewhere like that or whatever. He just he took a leave of an LOA, a leave of absence or something of that nature. And, and he began to pray and pray consistently and fervently. And he, he began to fast, you know, and uh, literally from, from morning to evening every day, he, he begged in his prayers, he begged God to strengthen his people and, and give them courage to accept the gift that God had offered to His people. It was a covenant gift, the restoration of their land, the restoration of, of their worship. And, and so that's where we're at now in the narrative, in the story. Let me pray before we actually get into this sizable text. Father, I, I just thank You for Your Word and ask that uh, You would accompany it today with the Holy Spirit and that uh, the Holy Spirit would apply the Word to us. He would transform us through it. He would convict us, edify, sanctify, build us up, make us a little bit more like Jesus. Maybe there might be one here today that, that doesn't know you in a saving way yet. And we pray 
for that saving grace, whatever it is. Lord, most of all, we pray that you would be glorified during this time. Open our minds and hearts. Speak to us now as we sit at your feet. We must recognize that you are our senior pastor, Jesus. You are the one who leads us and teaches us. It's not, it's not Phil. It's not anyone else. It's no man. It's you, the son of man. It's you, the God man. And so we give you our time and attention now. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pick it up at verse 1. we got a lot to cover, so I'm going to be moving. Verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So the vision came to Daniel during the third year of King Cyrus's reign. Cyrus is, is mentioned more than 30 times in the Bible, and he's identified as Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Second, Cyrus the Elder. Those are some of his other titles. Uh, he reigned over Persia from 539 to 530 BC. This pagan king is important in Jewish history because it was under his rule that the Jews were first allowed to return to Israel after 70 years of captivity. As I said earlier, Isaiah prophesied about God raising up this king. 150 years before he was born, he prophesied about um, not only the fact that he would come into history, he would be born and, and raised up as a king, but that he would be used for this purpose of God to send the Israelites back. We see that in Isaiah 45:13. He is also known for his advancement of human rights, and that's kind of hard to believe because back then people were very barbaric, but this king was a benevolent king, and, and he was, you know, if you study any history at all, you'll find that he really worked to advance human rights. Um, I don't know if we'd call it equality to that level, but certainly human rights, dignity. Um, he was a brilliant uh, military strategist, um, he is also known for, for bridging or bringing together, uh, bringing together Eastern and Western cultures, which didn't happen back then. They were so separated and isolated from one another. Um, and so that's kind of who he is. The prophetic vision Daniel received during the third year of this king's reign had to do with a great conflict, or if you prefer the NIV, uh, you know, I like the ESV, but if you have an NIV, I believe it says a great war uh, there. So the vision that he received, it, it talks about a great war, a great conflict. So that kind of sets the stage a little bit for where we're going over the next three chapters. Daniel tells us that he was able to understand this word and vision from God. And this must have been a relief for him because he often struggled to understand the visions that God had given him, right? The, the visions that God delivered to him through the angel Gabriel. Back in chapter 8, verse 27, he wrote, I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel had uh, a great difficulty in understanding uh, the visions that he received at times. He had a hard time figuring out the different components and variables and things that were happening. I, I know for a fact that if we were in his shoes, we would have had uh, a difficult time too, so it's not like he lacked brain power or faith. He just, uh, these things were complex. We've been looking at them. They're really, really tough to get your mind around. We have to remember that Daniel did not have our advantage uh, we can study history and connect certain events with his visions, and, and that helps us to make sense of it all. He couldn't do that. You know, it was all in the future for him. Uh, he had nothing to compare with, nothing to contrast to. So, um, like I said, if, if we were in his shoes and we couldn't look back over history and see how God made these things happen and some of them come to pass, then... You know, we wouldn't be able to connect the dots just as he wasn't able to back then. It doesn't mean that he didn't understand all of it, but there were times that he didn't understand. And he tells us he understood this vision, and I think that's incredible because I've read through it a few times and I still don't get it. So he understood one that I think is harder than the others, but the other ones that didn't seem so hard he didn't get. Kind of interesting, right? Uh, he didn't have history as, a, as an aide. We do. Uh, look at 2 through 4. In those days... I, Daniel, was mourning 
for three weeks, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. How sad. Uh, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. Stop right there. Here we see, uh, we get a glimpse of Daniel's frame of mind, his emotional and spiritual status. He was, as I said, so deeply saddened by what he saw uh, among God's people, the Jews. Uh, And I alluded to it earlier, only a small percentage of them had returned to Jerusalem. We actually have a number, about 50,000, which was probably a tenth. So the tiny, tiny, tiny group in comparison to how many of them were in Babylon went back, totally discouraged by that. Um, Daniel saw this inactivity and unwillingness to make the trek and to return to their promised land. He, He saw that as not an act of stupidity or foolishness or even laziness, but he saw it and interpreted it as a rejection of God's covenant gift and of God himself. You know, if, if a person claims to be a Christian, but they reject God's teachings and they don't live in such a way uh, that pleases Him, then we have to see that as not uh, maybe insane spiritual immaturity because they're new to this, but probably false faith. And that's the way that he saw this. The people aren't going back. They have forsaken their God. They have forsaken His covenant promise. That's the way that he saw this. Uh, The slow progress, as I mentioned, and the resistance of the squatters impacted him. Uh, We would say that he became absolutely stressed to the max. He was, and that sounds very 80s, he was just totally and utterly discouraged. But Daniel understood that God is his shelter and strength, right? Psalm 46, verse 1. And he turned to his, the source of his of his strength and his shelter, God, he turned to him in prayer. And, and he did some other things. It says he mourned. That means literally wept. It says he fasted. That means basically here, what did he fast from? He didn't eat meat or wine. And he did not anoint himself. And we would probably say that that means that he didn't apply oils, lotions, colognes, these sorts of things. Um, and you have to, and it just sounds like, well, so what? He didn't put drakkar on for three weeks. No, back in these days, these things were kind of essential. These people were out in desert land in, in the sun. And if, if you were like Daniel, you were considered near royalty, you had the best of everything. And, and, and so he forsook all of these things, these choice meats and wines. He's crying every day. He's mourning to God every day. He's uh, weeping before the Lord. Gets rid of just all of the, the great bennies. The forfeiture of these finer foods and other things were really part of Daniel's worship. They were expressions of his worship. He laid the luxuries aside. He sacrificed them to seek and to worship the Lord. That's how we should look at this. And I'm reminded of how King David uh, wanted to build an altar to the Lord and a generous landowner, land owner offered to, to give him a field and the oxen that he would sacrifice for free offered, hey, you can, I know who you are, you're King David, you can have this plot of land, you can have the oxen, I'll, I'll supply you with everything. I mean, what a gift, right? This guy was a generous guy. And David replied, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. That cost me nothing. And I'll tell you, the Lord is truly pleased with His people when we, or when our acts of worship are costly and require sacrifice. It is totally pleasing to the Lord. In some ways, you could call that true worship. Many Christians give out of their surplus or give almost nothing at all. And both types rob themselves of the joy that comes through sacrificial giving. And I think that sacrificial giving is where it's at. That's that's how we should give. If if you give each week and it doesn't sting a bit, you're probably not giving sacrificially. 
If you've just got all this resource and you just throw it out there because it doesn't even phase you, that's not sacrificial. Sacrificial giving is when it stings, is when it hurts. You know, if you make $60,000 a year and you give 1% per year, which is $600, that's probably not going to impact your budget, cause you to be concerned or to rely on the Lord more, to be worried at all, anxious. It's not really going to impact you. Maybe for some of you, you think, well, I live so tight, but you got 60K. It's not really going to impact you. But if you give 10%, that's 6000 that might be a game changer. You might not be able to take some of the trips that you thought you might want to take. You might not be able to do some of the things that you would prefer to do. See, at this point, what you're doing is you're committing to give to the Lord more. And you're doing it in a way that you know will cost you and cause you to have to maybe change direction a little bit or adjust your budget. That, my friends, is sacrificial giving when it stings, when it causes you to have, if you just, I just, you know, I just, I just make it rain because I can make it rain and you don't even feel it. I tell you, the church leadership's happy. Somebody made it rain on Sunday. We've been in a financial drought. But it's an act of worship, but is it sacrificial worship? Not if it doesn't sting. Not if it doesn't cost. And so there are different kinds of, of giving. But I say sacrificial is where it's at. Because that is a place and experience where there is special joy from the Lord. So just challenge yourself in that area. It's, I know it's not easy. It's certainly not easy. Um, but it's what we see in Scripture. And we see even Daniel doing that in chapter 10 where he sets aside some of those things uh, that were important to him and that he was totally and absolutely entitled to, totally entitled to. After three weeks of prayer and self-denial, Daniel took a stroll along the Tigris River with probably some of his friends. We don't know who these guys are that are mentioned here. I think they were his friends. They could have been Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if those dudes were still alive. I don't know. We haven't talked about them for a long time chapter 2, but it could have been them. He could have been out there on the uh, riverbank with those guys. We don't know for sure. While standing on the bank of the Tigris, Daniel received a vision. Now look at 5 and 6. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like, uh, the, like gleaming or the gleam. They had the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. Talk about alarming. Talk about frightening. So in his vision, he sees a man, right, who appears to be a man and he lists seven very quick details. We'll just cover them fast. He was clothed in linen. The linen here is a reference to a priestly garment, symbolizes sanctity. Um, he wore a belt of fine gold from Euphaz. Euphaz is the gold-bearing region of, of Israel. You think of our gold rush and our gold territory up here in the Tuolumne and Calaveras counties and all that, that Euphaz is that area in Israel. His body was like barrel. Uh, it didn't look like a barrel. It was, it had the appearance of barrel, B-E-R-Y-L. What on earth is that? It is yellow topaz. How many of you have a topaz ring? I'm talking about the ladies and maybe some Liberace-esque guys. Yeah? Do you have blue topaz? Because most of the time when you see topaz, it's kind of a, a beautiful light blue, which is like that. And this is yellow topaz, and it was mined in Tarshish. That's the place that uh, the apostle Paul of Saul of Tarsus was from. His face like lightning, I have no idea what that means. Uh, maybe it was exceedingly bright. His eyes like flaming torches. Um, that's self-explanatory. His arms and legs gleamed like polished bronze. His words like the sound of a multitude. 
Uh, this, this is amazing. Who, this person that he saw is just incredible, right? This would be a sight to behold. Some scholars, including Matthew Henry, who's one of the older Reformed guys, say this was a Christophany. What is a Christophany? A pre-incarnate visit from Christ. Uh, Christ is described in a similar way in Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. He has the flaming torch eyes and these things. Uh, but I think that verse 13 challenges this interpretation. It tells us that this uh, incredibly glorious being was attacked by a prince demon and prevented from coming to Daniel sooner until Michael showed up. Now, you just think about it for a moment. I can see a prince demon wrestling with and hindering an angel. But can you imagine a prince demon or anyone or anything doing that to the living Christ? To Christ? I can't. I'm, I'm like, I'm trying to get there, Matthew Henry. But so if, if you believe it's a Christophany, Christophany and it's Christ, then you have to accept that as a fact that Christ came down and he was coming to deliver this message and he was hung up and he had to be basically rescued by an angel, the archangel Michael. I don't know, man. I just, I don't think so. I don't think it could be. I would say that Christ has mastery over the invisible angelic realm. He is what? The king of angels, right? He is called the king of angels. We think of him as the king of angels. This is 500 years before he was born. The angels and the demons are subject to him, right? Not the other way around. All of creation is subject to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, you know, you think of his, his earthly ministry, the incarnation. He totally displayed sovereignty over the angels and the demons, or at least the demons, he rebuked the devil in the desert. Who's the devil? He's, a, he's an angel, a fallen angel. He rebuked him, right? Away from me. Man shall not live by bread alone. He sends him packing. That doesn't sound like the devil has mastery over him. In fact, he defeated the devil at every pass. He cast out a legion, maybe 12,000 demons, right? Out of one guy who was out of his mind. And he cast those demons into a herd of pigs into the swine, and what they do? Ran off a cliff and drowned in the ocean or in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he told his arresters the night of his arrest, when they came to arrest him, he told them that he could call upon the Father and have 12 legions of angels dispatched to defend him. The only time Christ ever, that I can find in Scripture, the only time that Christ ever, ever allowed himself to be subdued was during his incarnation and that was the for the purpose of redemption right he allowed himself to be arrested to be beaten to be nailed to a cross to be killed that's the only thing in scripture that i can find where he actually allowed himself to be subdued captured held up by anyone and we know that he did that strategically according to God's eternal plan for our redemption. It was necessary that he what? Lay down his life. But that's not all he did. It was also necessary that he take it up again. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Even when those human authorities arrested him, captured him, subdued him, it was because he willed it and allowed it. 12,000 legions of angels could have stopped that, but he refused to do it because if he doesn't go to the cross, we are sunk. I don't think that we're looking at a Christophany here. I don't think that we're looking at Christ. I know there's parallels between the Revelation 1 passage and here in his appearance, but it doesn't necessarily mean for sure that it's him. Who is it then? Who is the man that Daniel saw? Who is the man of verse 5? I believe it is the angel Gabriel. He is the one who appeared to Daniel in chapters 7, 8, and 9, and I believe he did it here again in chapter 10. The difference is this time he appears in heavenly angelic glory. That's the difference. Before, he just appeared to be like a man. But he still came supernaturally in the vision, came down, so there, there was that component. But here I just think that he's in his glory. He's in a kind of a glorified, just, you know, 
state, if you will, because an angel can assume the appearance of a man or other things. They have this ability and power, but I think here we see him in his, in his heavenly glory, if you want to call it that. How did these men, Daniel and these friends, uh, respond to Gabriel's glorious appearing here on the riverbank? 7 through 10, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. <laughs> so I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. This is how they responded. It was Daniel alone who actually saw the angel here, the messenger Gabriel. He was the only one who saw him. His friends may have heard his voice, which might be why they trembled in fear and ran for the hills. Daniel was also exceedingly terrified. It says his strength left him. I don't think this was due to the fact that he was fasting. He saw this glorious being and it was like his strength went out of him. His appearance changed. That means he turned white as a ghost. Uh, When Gabriel began to speak, address Daniel, it says he fell on his face in deep sleep. This is the third time that Daniel has fainted in front of Gabriel. This was a full-blown fainting, a passing out. The sight was too much to behold, and he hit the ground. And, And yes, Daniel was a fainter. Any other fainters in the room here? Do we have any fainters? You see a drop of blood, you hit the floor. I'm not a fainter. I praise God. I hope I never become one. I don't want to wake up like 10 minutes later with Sharpie all over me or something. Uh, But I tell you, if if anyone in this room, including me, saw what he saw at this point, I don't know if we would be standing. I think that it was just too brilliant and gorgeous and beautiful and awe-inspiring. So he hits the ground. This is like the third time he's passed out, fainted in front of Gabriel. And I think Gabriel at this point is saying, every time I visit this guy, I have to revive him. Can you find another messenger, Lord? You know, I mean, every time I come down here, I got to get the smelling salts out. This guy can't handle anything. He's 80. He's going to break his hip for crying out loud. And so he, I don't know if he was thinking that at all. That's a conjecture. What Gabriel does, though, is that he reaches down and he touches Daniel. He touches him. And, and Daniel immediately pops up onto his hands and knees. Now we look at 11 and 12. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, Basically, from the first moment you started praying, your words had been heard, and I have come because of your words. Now, if you flip back to chapter 9, verse 23, just go ahead and flip back there if you've got a Bible in front of you. Chapter 9, verse 23, what did Gabriel call Daniel? Greatly loved. The same description is used here in verse 11. Greatly loved. What does that tell us? Probably the same person addressing Daniel, right? I think that that right there, among other facets here in this scripture, I think it proves that Gabriel is our heavenly visitor. Gabriel tells Daniel to, you know, sort of get up off his hands and knees, to rise to his feet because he has a message from God for him, the answer to his prayers. Daniel obeyed his orders, but his knees were still knocking from fear. He tells Daniel, do not fear because God has heard your prayer the moment you began to pray. And I have basically come to give you the answer. This is what Gabriel tells him. Daniel Daniel actually began to pray on Nisan 3, that's the month and day, 21 days earlier. Okay, so what we're looking at here, the... The, the, giving, the appearance of the angel and the giving of the vision happened t- 21 days after he began to pray on Nissan 3. 
this is also the moment, the time, 21 days earlier, when he began to pray, this is also the moment God gave an answer to his prayer and sent Gabriel to deliver the answer. 21 days earlier. Last Sunday, we learned that it took Gabriel about three minutes to travel from the throne of God to Daniel's location in Babylon. Three minutes. But here, 21 days. Why? Did Daniel move? Did heaven move? Did the throne of God, did God say, I'm kind of tired of this spot and move over to the other side of heaven? what's, What's going on here? Why three minutes? Why 21 days? Huge difference, right? Big difference. Well, the answer is no to anything moving or anything. The same place, same locations. The answer we find in verse 13. Gabriel says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Okay. Do we have any MMA fans or boxing fans in the room? Two, three. How about do you have a favorite fight or battle scene in a movie? Anyone have that? Are you guys like conscientious objectors and hate violence? What's wrong with you? Right? Right? No, there's no kind of fight scene or anything that you like? that you relish. I, there, there are some that I like. I, one of my favorites is in a, a kind of an obscure movie called Ip Man. And he, Ip Man is basically the guy who first began to train Bruce Lee. So he's like a karate stud or kung fu stud. And, and there's a movie called Ip Man. It's his very first one. There's like three or four of them, but his first one is, I think, his best. And there is a scene in it where Ip Man, the guy who plays him, uh, Donnie Yen, uses Wing Chun, which is a particular type of Kung Fu, very unique type, a lot of blocking and stuff like that. He uses it to take out like 10 or 15 Japanese soldiers who are all black belts in karate. This takes place during World War II. I love that scene. It's unreal. It's incredible. It's like one of the best karate fight scenes of all time. And how about maybe the rebel attack on the Death Star in Star Wars A New Hope, right? That's like one of the classic battle scenes, man, where they're flying through those corridors and trying to shoot, you know, the, the I don't know, photon, I'm not going to use the wrong language because there's Star Wars fans in the back that'll burn me, but they shoot something and it misses the hole and then finally it goes down there and the whole thing blows up. These are like, I consider that to be a classic battle scene, right? Yeah, Matrix would be good. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. Now, we just read about one of the all-time greatest non-fictional battle scenes in verse 13 where the angels Gabriel and Michael took on the prince of the kingdom of Persia. You just read in that one line there is an incredible battle that has taken place. One of the great, and it's not fictional, it's, it's, it's non-fictional. It's true, it's real, it happened. Now, it's obvious that the prince of the kingdom of Persia was not a man, for no human could resist a messenger from God, an angel, right? Angels are far more powerful than human beings. This is one of, or was one of, Satan's demons. That's who we're looking at here. And I would say one of his more powerful ones. This record makes it apparent that Satan assigns his demons geographically It's probable that he assigns one demon prince to head the satanic activity of one principality or government um, on each principality and government on the entire face of the earth. It's, It's incredible to think. If there is a demon prince assigned to Persia or was back then, there is most likely a prince demon assigned to the territories where you and I live. This prince demon oversaw the demonic activities in Persia and his job was to try to hinder God's work in the region. And we're talking about spiritual warfare here, friends. This is what we see in the text. Spiritual warfare is unlike physical warfare in that it is unseen because it takes place in 
the spiritual realm. Its effects, however, can be seen in the physical realm. The 21-day delay of God's answer to Daniel's prayer is an excellent example of how, of how we can see the effect of an invisible war that plays out. That's proof of it. The Apostle Paul talked about spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, he's referring to Christians, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. He describes, um, he describes spiritual warfare as strongholds, arguments, and lofty opinions which are set against the knowledge of God. I would say the truth of Scripture. He tells us that we have to use special weaponry in this kind of warfare, the kind that has divine power because it alone can bring down demonic opposition to God's will and truth. In Ephesians 6, he, de he describes our weaponry. He calls it the whole armor of God. Some of you were with us months ago and you remember us teaching through Ephesians. Uh, the, armor of, the whole armor of God consists of the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the footwear of the readiness of the gospel, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and prayer. If we put on this whole armor of God, this weaponry each day, we will be able to stand against, what does Paul tell us? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we, have, we see an example in verse 13 of spiritual warfare where angels and demons are battling it out. We see the effect, the delay in God's prayer answer to him. And we now understand that it exists, it is real, it happens, and that we need to be equipped and ready to take a stand when it comes. And the, what it generally looks like is people rejecting the gospel or maligning the gospel or denying the gospel, denying God's truth, making philosophical arguments against it. We don't beat those people up verbally. We just prayerfully and graciously defend God's word. Sometimes you've got to get a little, come on now, because you're blaspheming. But this is spiritual warfare that we're looking at. It's a real thing, and its effects are real. And I would say that evil in the world and all of the warfare and all of these things... Can we tie those things to human depravity? Absolutely, but we can also tie them to, to you know, spiritual warfare, to the existence of evil and demons because they're constantly twisting and turning and fighting and killing and murdering, and they do it through people most of the time. When Gabriel left heaven to deliver God's message to Daniel, the answer to his prayer, Satan dispatched this prince demon to intercept and stop him from getting through. He did not want this vision getting to Daniel, and he sends this guy, who's a tough guy, this big bouncer demon, he sends him over to stop, uh, to stop Gabriel, to hinder him. And he was successful, right, for 21 days until God called in an airstrike named Michael, who was one of the chief princes. Michael is mentioned twice in the New Testament. In Revelation 12, 7, he is the leading warrior uh, in the great heavenly battle against Satan in Jude 1 9, Jude 1 9, he is called Michael the Archangel. The term Archangel means the angel who is first, principal, or chief. The Archangel, Michael, flew in and began to assault the, this prince demon. He began to strike, it was an epic battle, striking him with sword thrusts and blasts, and he was able to. Uh, gained the upper hand over this demon, allowing Gabriel to slip through and make his way to Daniel, who was standing on the bank of the Tigris. That's how this played out, man. This is crazy. This, this, is this insane or what? He shows up. He just got out of the battle because Michael held up the demon so he could get through. This is incredible. I'll paraphrase verse 13. This is from... The PBV, or Phil Baker version. <laughs> trying, to get it, trying to get it published. They're not going for it. It's got too much stupid modern-day lingo in it. Here, here's what Gabriel said in a nutshell, my words. I would have come 21 days ago, but a prince demon held me up until Michael came and laid hands on him. That's what he's saying. 
I would have been here the moment you started praying. I couldn't get to you. I couldn't get to you until Michael came and helped me out. So in verse 13, Gabriel tells Daniel why he was delayed. In verse 14, he tells him, in verse 14, he tells him why he came. Look at 14. To make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So the purpose of his appearance here was to deliver God's answer, which has to do with the latter days or things yet to come for Daniel's people, the Jews. The word happen indicates happen, right? When we think of something that happened, it's usually not good. Oh, man, that happened and it led to this. The word happen here indicates that Daniel's people will experience more trouble. More terrible things are going to happen to them. It's as if Gabriel said, I've come to give you the bad news and the good news. That's kind of what he's saying. Look at 15 through 17. When he had spoken, that was also from the PBV. When he had spoken to me, uh, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Okay, he's going back to what he did before. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. That sounds uh, almost poetic, the way Gabriel has dis- or Daniel has described himself. Again, he was totally overwhelmed by the situation playing out with his people, and now he's totally overwhelmed by the fact that more tragic and tough things are coming. More things will happen. Okay, it, it, you know, again, Gabriel says there's more that's going to happen. And, and now it's like he's at this teeter point where he's just, oh, man, are you kidding me? I thought it was just going to be all good news. And he's just, he's discouraged. His discouragement just reached another level to the point now that he was what? M-U-T-E, mute. He couldn't speak. He was speechless. He was so sad. Gabriel reached out his hand and touched his lips so he could talk with him. Daniel began to speak and told him uh, that the news pained him and depleted the little bit of strength he had left. It's as if he said, I've got nothing left. How can I talk with you? I can barely breathe. Have you ever been so stressed that you could barely breathe? That's where he's at. That's how he feels. Now look at uh, verse 18, and we're going to take it all the way through to 11.1. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, except Michael, your prince. And as for me, this is 11.1, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Gabriel reached out and touched Daniel again, but this time he strengthened him. He repeated himself, saying that he was greatly loved, and then he exhorted him, Fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Take those words to the bank. That is the Lord's encouragement to you today. Be strong and of good courage. Daniel perked up and told Daniel or told Gabriel he was there's so many names here. It's like what? Daniel perked up and told Gabriel he was feeling better and ready to listen. I, I, my strength has returned to me. I, I, I can listen to you now. In addressing him as my Lord, Daniel was using a title of respect, something like our modern-day sir. He's not referring to him as, as deity or anything like that. It's just like, sir, I can listen to you now. Gabriel then stated that he would return to assist Michael in the war against the prince of the kingdom of Persia after they were finished talking. He tells him that another prince demon would arise whom he calls the prince of Greece. This is a reference to the fall of Medo-Persia and the rise of Greece, the Greek kingdom or empire. Alexander the Great, think of him. 
Satan would assign a prince demon to oversee the demonic activity of that kingdom just as he did Persia or Medo-Persia. And the invisible war between the angels and the demons would continue. Gabriel told Daniel that he would unpack what is inscribed. This is fascinating. He would unpack for him, tell him uh, what is inscribed in the book of truth before he leaves him. Before I go back and return with Michael to engage in battle again, I'm going to tell you what's inscribed in the book of truth. And we must understand that God's word has always existed in the heavens because it is eternal, but it hasn't always existed in written form on earth. You understand what I'm saying? You know, the Bible's inspired by the Holy Spirit, authored by several authors, um, written over a period of 1,500 years. It had a starting point. It was completed. It was canonized. Okay, so, so God's Word, which is manifest, represented in the Bible, it has always existed for all eternity, even before the printing press and before the Bible was actually written by human authors. Before it was written in earthly languages, speaking of the Bible, God's Word was referred to as the book of truth. The book of truth is heaven's Bible, and it's always been there. It's always existed. It's incredible to think, isn't it? Gabriel was about to reveal God's plans for Israel from this eternal wellspring of truth, and Daniel would in turn write these things down, thus becoming what we refer to as the Bible, Scripture. Fascinating. It's really mind-blowing to think that God's Word existed uh, in the book of truth long before our Bibles were ever written, because God's Word is eternal. It's always existed. It's always been there. Unbelievable. Well, it should be believable, but it's incredible. Gabriel told Daniel he was supported by Michael in his struggle with demons, in his battle with demons, particularly the, uh, um, this one here with this prince of Persia. He refers to Michael also as your prince. He calls Michael Daniel's prince. Uh, and uh, this would be in the sense that Michael has a special relationship to Daniel's people, the Jews. He told him about how he supported Michael, the archangel, when Darius the Mede began his rule over Babylon. Michael was engaged in fierce warfare with demons during that exchange of power and during the reign of Darius. Uh, these demons were, you know, back then these demons were working in and through the evil men who tricked Darius into signing the decree that almost ended Daniel's life at the lion's den. See, the origin of all evil isn't with the fall of man. It happened in heaven with the angels who rebelled against God. Evil begins in the spiritual realm before it's manifested here. Now, there, there were demons at work working in and through those leaders and getting and persuading Darius into creating that crazy edict that only allowed people to worship him for a month. They were behind all of that. There were demons behind it. And Michael had, the archangel Michael had his hands full and probably prevented additional demonic attacks. Gabriel came during that time, right? He assisted the archangel Michael. He came to confirm and strengthen him. Isn't that interesting? So it's like Michael's returning the favor to Gabriel. He's getting mixed up with a demon. He comes and helps him, but Gabriel did it long before for Michael. Pretty interesting. Just kind of wrapping up, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will begin to study the details concerning God's prophetic plan for Israel. And I want to close and leave you with a, a couple of final exhortations, some practical stuff. First, I want you to remember that God's delays are not God's denials. God's delays are not God's denials. For 21 days, Daniel poured out his heart to God in prayer and fasting. During those 21 days, it must have seemed to Daniel as if God wasn't listening. Right? Little did Daniel know that God had heard his prayer from the moment he began to pray. We can be... We can become easily, very easily discouraged when our prayers seem to go unheard. But this text, Daniel himself, reminds us 
to be persistent in praying. Don't quit, faint, or yield in bringing your requests to God. He is listening. He listens to His people. And the answer to your prayer may be closer than you realize. Okay, so take that from this text. Second, never underestimate or overestimate the power of Satan. Don't do it. Don't underestimate, don't overestimate. Daniel gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the activity of our adversary. From Daniel 10, we learned that Satan is organized geographically and that his demons are powerful, powerful enough to delay God's answer to his servant, Daniel. That, that is serious ability and power. While we must not underestimate Satan's power, we, we must not overestimate it either. In Christ, we have strength and resources to overcome our adversary. 